day and welcome to Football Unfocused, the podcast that is supposedly and loosely based on uh, chats about football, the issues, the hot topics that uh, uh, arouse our uh, our interest and suspicion. And I present this along with my good friend, uh, Matthew, who I've known for many, many years and basically knows very little about football and has very little interest in football. Isn't that right, Matthew? <laughs> You're becoming increasingly derogatory about my knowledge of football. I mean, well, um, the first... First episode, you were quite sort of complimentary, I think. But now, but now, as we talk more about it, I think you quite sort of come to light as to how little I do know. <laughs> yeah, every every week, I need three days. I need three days to prep for the for the podcast. <laughs> I was going to say once I once I you know you're fine when I can see you staring at the notes you've made on the uh, screen and your pre preordained thoughts uh, and insight and research. But then when it's when you start to deviate, I think, oh, he's in trouble now. <laughs> the car is rearing towards the central reservation. He's going to fucking crash. Yeah, I mean. but, you say I'm getting increasingly hostile, but, you know, this is still, in my opinion, quite, I'm holding back. In a few weeks' time, it's going to be, and I'm presenting along with this cunt. And, uh, <laughs> that's what it will be. And the thing is, it takes me three days, and then I finish my, sort of, my little spill, and then you're like... Oh, yeah, no, that's quite an obvious thing to say, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's that's (laughs) basically my bollocks. I think I've heard that point of view about a hundred (laughs) times. Do you ever, ever, before you even get to the bit where you get to reveal your research, do I ever start trashing people who say stuff like this and you're looking at your list going, oh, shit, that's points one, two and three. I mean, you have said... Yeah, a few people have said that before, after I've done my little spill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I.e. everyone who's ever spoken about this subject for the first time. Yeah. 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 But it's this great dynamic that makes our podcast such riveting. That's why <laughs> yeah. up, up to four people will probably listen to, uh, to this episode. I, I told you before we started, it's three, all right, Mark? So don't be trying yeah. to, you know, bolster the, don't try and bolster the numbers. <laughs> yeah, but if we're going to hit the heady heights of four, uh, then we need to really start expanding our content. You know, we, need to, we need to look at the brand management here. <laughs> Uh, yeah. and, you know, I, I can see where the brand weaknesses are, uh, <laughs> and they're they're very much at, at your door. <laughs> anyway, what are we talking about today, Matthew? Uh, yeah, so today we're we're talking about the the birth of the Premier League in the ninety two ninety three season, mm. Um, mm. which I didn't. I mean, it's a great topic. Yeah, yeah. Well, what a great topic you suggested there for yourself to discuss, but. Mm. Um, I didn't quite realise that how when you told me I was like fucking hell this sounds a bit boring but but it I didn't realise and and also I, I felt slightly overwhelmed the, the slightly mythical um, t- tale that it became of uh, of of the birth of the Premier League and and also kind of the how far it went back in some ways I mean some you know I sort of read something it was sort of the you know the 60s 70s and 80s the the growth of private capitalism and and the and the growth of well sorry the deregulation of of markets and how all of that also kind of fed into 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 yeah. the birth of uh, the premier league so um so obviously in the in the 80s you know it's sounded like you know football was in decline attendance was falling hooliganism was rife 
stadiums were in decline. Um, <clears throat> and then Greg Dyke and David Dean from Arsenal, um, who were sort of arguably inspired by the American sort of has, um, fanfare of, 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 of the, of American football, um, you know, thought that they could, uh, put together a, a, the TV rights for, for the first division. But initially they were only looking at, you know, the top four teams, but the, the, the football league said, no, 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 we don't want, you know, we don't want the top four teams being, uh, sort of siphoned off. So they, they just sold them all the rights the entire division and it was and it was only at was that it not point the big five my my memory is that, big five that, yeah um, no i think yeah top Which, five yeah. top right yeah liverpool everton yeah. manchester united and the two north london teams tottenham and arsenal they yeah, were yeah. they were tottenham regarded arsenal, yeah. as the big five at the time yeah 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 and, and uh, notably when you look at the situation football's in now sort of nearly 30 years later interesting you know no mention of uh, man city or chelsea yeah and that and that you know that sort of resonates a lot with what you've been talking about previously about <clears throat> what's it called again Pro- project re oh no i'm gonna no project, was it was no, no it's not project project restart restart was the was the one in which um to get football playing People again in once the, uh, yeah after the covid uh first lockdown um yeah i forget the name of the hot the, the, the disgusting um sort of in, indefensible um, reform uh, proposal by my club, Liverpool and Manchester United. Um, yeah. But yeah, this, yeah, but you, you, what's quite interesting there, uh, I'm under many... Project, uh, in, is it Project Big Picture? Pro, Project Big Picture, that's the one, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. appalling and we can go on about that another day maybe. But yeah, 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 yeah. it's absolutely indefensible. Um, and an attempt at a land grab of all of the power and control of uh, top flight football at a time when um, so many clubs are at their most vulnerable, um, particularly outside of the Premier League. But hey, but 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 you, you're right to identify the trend in that. I think that the this idea that um, clubs. Um, who were sort of high achieving clubs, both on the pitch and off the pitch, felt that they were not getting the full value from uh, broadcasting and other sort of commercial endeavours. And that kind of swell of pressure to either break away or to really mix up the status quo, it's unstoppable. Once you let that genie out of the bottle, it's unstoppable. And even though you could could certainly argue that the Premier League has been an amazing uh, success, in pretty much every conceivable way. But now, I guess the equivalent that people will be looking back in uh, 10, 15 years' time, the depressingly inevitable European Super League that will will one day happen, um, and you're hearing a lot more noises about it uh, over the last two or three years in particular, but that's been brewing for years. I remember in the late 90s, early 2000s, when... Um, there was a lot of talk about these breakaway European Super Leagues, the elite clubs just wanted to play each other the whole time because the amount of money they'll get from television, etc., will be, you know, way above what they'd get domestically. And uh, UEFA placated those clubs by introducing a um, second phase of group stage in the in the Champions League. That 
that that model they only went with that for a couple of years because it was it was the amount of games was ridiculous. So you had to qualify through two group matches before you get uh, two group stages before you get to the uh, the knockouts. And then what they did instead is just had, had a larger one group stage uh, as a kind of compromise. But that pressure is still there. And it all stems from the same mentality that brought the Premier League uh, in, in the first place. But one of the things that's quite interesting, just taking it a step back a second, that, 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 um, that the, the birth of the Premier League is responsible for is one of, you know, when I'm going to put my moany old man hat on, uh, is one of my, probably my biggest bugbear about modern football is the idea of uh, statistics that are all just just focused on the Premier League years. So it'll be like, how many Premier League titles have they won? Who's the top scorer in the Premier League era? Who's got the most assists in the Premier League era? There was over 100 years of football before that, you know, and it, and it really it pisses me off, like, beyond belief. And the thing is, people used to always say to me, oh, yeah, that's only because you're a Liverpool fan and they've won 18 titles and they've never won it since it's been... Uh, called the Premier League, and if 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 that weren't if that weren't the case, you wouldn't give a shit. I was like, absolutely not. I just care about football, and like you know, I I grew up. I started getting into football a few years before the Premier League started. You know, sort of nineteen eighty eight when I was seven years old, six and seven years old, and um, I would hate the idea that all of those you know amazing experiences and things were just completely undermined because it was it's exactly the same thing. Just wasn't called the Premier League. It was called the First Division because it was a, a breakaway in which, you know, the, the, contr- the complete control that the FA had previously had was removed from them by sort of, you know, a breakaway, a breakaway league. Um, and that, that fuck, I know, I know this is, a, you know, a minor side point, but that really, it really winds <laughs> me up. Like football was invented in 1992 and it, yeah. And you talk about the 80s as well, which is definitely, and you can see why, because of all of the things that you mentioned, you can see why the Premier League was born out of that era, because there were so many negative things going on with the decrepit stadiums, the underinvestment, the fact that attendances were falling. I was looking the other day, 1980, mm. 1984, uh, that year, Liverpool won the league, the League Cup and the European Cup, right? That's a... Um, you know, an amazing season, the most successful season in the club's history. They had an average home attendance that season of 31,000. 31,000. The following season, uh, two seasons after that, 85, 86, which was the year after the high school disaster, uh, the average attendance in the top division was 19,000. That was the average attendance. That's not Liverpool, that's across the whole league. Mm. And you know, can you imagine that now when we've got this glitzy product on these perfect green bowling green pitches that with the packed stadiums and everyone wearing their replica gear and it looks shiny and new and exciting and it's sold all around the world and this dream picture of look at look at this amazing league, all the best players in the world want to play there and everything's so amazing. And a massive part of that is having full stadiums. And I think what, what we've learned from the last year is how undervalued, how devalued as a product football is when those stadiums are. It just feels artificial and empty and soulless and joyless, really. And I feel, I actually feel really sorry for Manchester City who are going to win the league this year. They, that's going to be a league title where, you know, people throw back to last year and say Liverpool couldn't play their last four games in front of fans. Yes, true. But there were like 15 games before then. Uh, 
you know, we, we, in a packed stadium, we saw like the most amazing season ever, and, and indeed the season before that. Whereas Man City are gonna, it's, it's gonna be like a lost title, and the title that nobody saw. It doesn't. I'm not gonna be one of those pricks who says, "Oh, it devalues it," because it doesn't. It, the achievement is exactly the same. It's on the pitch. But I, I do feel because I look at everything from the point of view of a, a football fan who goes to games because they're they're the people I have the, the, the most respect for, really. Um, and uh, th- no one's going to have seen a kick, and I, I think that's, that's pretty tragic because there's you know whatever what they're going to achieve this season is pretty remarkable considering all the challenges that everyone has uh, has faced. But anyway, I'm going way off the point. That ninety two ninety three season really is it's you could you could you could say that. The whole everything about modern football, the direction it's gone, and all of the you know the sort of trends and the the challenges and, and everything, and the, the way in which the clubs that have succeeded, kind of why they've done it, stems from that 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 period of time. You know, yeah, because yeah, those, yeah. In, in those eighties, it was it couldn't go on like that any any longer. You know, you you were getting you know even outside of the um, the famous high school disaster of 85 and obviously Hillsbury in 89, which are both examples of um, like, unimaginable levels of neglect and treating football supporters like, you know, farmyard animals, cattle, you know, it's appalling and, and just having no respect for um, sort of safety standards and, you know, human life. But there's other stuff as well. And, you know, there was a, there was a horrendous fire, um, at Bradford City in the mid-80s as well, I think 1985, which loads of people died. And that was, again, was because they're playing, people are standing, they're, they're basically standing on a bonfire. I think we mm. might have covered this the other week, so I won't go yeah, on yeah. too much. But, 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 but what it shows is just the low ebb that football was at in the, in the 1980s. And there's no doubt things needed to change. And also just how it was undervaluing itself as a product. You only used to be able to get in when I first started watching football in the um, late 80s and the first couple of years of the 90s. You had one live game a week. It was on ITV, Sunday afternoon, three or four o'clock. That was it. Nothing on a Saturday. Oh, you never that, so that was the initial deal, wasn't it? That I was yeah. talking about that Greg Dyke sort of struck was that, that first deal. And they. The, the, first, and the he, first Premier League one, the Sky one, or the ITV no, one? No, no. So b- b- the ITV one. Wasn't it? Yeah. Is that, is that one yeah, of, yeah. The, the one that was one match a week, you know, every yeah. week on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. But they still had, um, I'm pretty sure they still had a highlight, a Saturday night highlights program on, I, I think that was, there was a couple of years where the BBC lost it and it was uh, ITV. I'm not talking about okay, the, okay. Um, I'm not talking about the early 2000s. Uh, no, 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 no. Yeah. Um, because I remember when, when, the Premier League started and Match of the Day sort of came back and they got a new... I remember it was a big deal was being made of, thank God, Match of the Day's back. But, <laughs> um, well, you know, it's a big deal. People have got a right <laughs> to watch Match of the Day, Matthew. <laughs> uh, but it it was an amazing... Because even, even when... Even, in, I think, in the first few Premier League seasons, I don't, I'm don't. i certain there weren't any live games on a Saturday. It was a, there was a Sunday 4 o'clock game, and there was quite often there'd be, they introduced the concept of a Monday night football. And that'd be it, and you'd get the odd midweek one. So even then, even though Sky had had, had paid all this money and uh, it was a brand new sort of shiny concept, there was still only one or two live games a week. 
And I know at the moment you can't really compare it because at the moment, because of the situation, everything is live. But under normal circumstances, you got what, two games on a Saturday, two or three on a Sunday, and then either a Friday or a Monday night. So you're talking about about fifty percent of the Premier League games on any given weekend are on live TV. Mm. Yeah, I mean it's it's obviously it was that injection of money through you know, television that 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 obviously had quite a big impact. And Greg Dyke talks about the fact that, you know, obviously he lost out. I mean, ITV and B Sky B were going for, you know, going to going for this idea, pitching for this new product, the Premier League. And uh and and it, it sounded like there were some shenanigans that went on that meant he lost out to to Rupert Murdoch. And uh but yeah, it's um he, he's sort of, you know, he's quite philosophical about it now. Apparently he sort of sort of says, well, you know, it was always going to end up on pay TV. It was never, you know, ITV was never going to keep hold of it. But um but it's just just strange how, you know, so obviously all football in Europe is, you know, a lot of you know it's the Premier League is it has the highest player wages out of any uh, league yeah. in Europe. And um but but it's not like you know it's not double. I mean it's it's sort of a few hundred million more than than the next sort of league. I can't remember who it is actually. Are you talking about it's the probably... value of the TV contract? No, 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 not the value of the t- the, the players' wages. Uh, oh, okay. but yeah, I mean, well, it's probably Spain. Said... I'd imagine. I'd imagine yeah, Spain yeah. second because Barcelona and Real Madrid spend so enough on wages to rival yeah. the GDP of a you know developing <laughs> nation. So yeah. uh, it'll definitely be Spain. Um, but why? Definitely. But why they didn't? Why they didn't end up going down this route of a of a yeah. of a franchise, a breakaway type league? Um, you know, so yes, the the pay per view stuff that probably was inevitable. But what? Why did it necessarily have to break away in that? In that, you know, it seems quite a, an English uh, trait. As I was talking about the deregularization, you know, sort of probably the Thatcher economic, economics of things meant that they thought that was the only way you would be able to achieve that sort of level of investment. Well, yeah, and it's 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 what well, what's quite interesting as well is it makes you realise the the extent to because English football was not even close to being the strongest league in Europe at that time. Um, it was all about Italy. It was all about Italy, and, that, and to a certain extent, Spain. But you know, the Italian league was the glamour league. That's where all the money was. That's where the best players were. We used to have, you know, highlights and live matches on Channel Four in in uh, this country. And in the first few years of uh, the Premier League, when hardly anyone had Sky, it felt like it didn't matter as long as you could watch match of the day. You were like, all right, well, there's a live Italian game on this afternoon. Oh, look, it's uh, you know AC Milan against Sampdoria, in which you get to see on the same pitch. You get to see like you know George Weir, Roberto Baggio, Marcel Desai, Franco Baresi. Rude Hullet, Attilio Lombardo, Gianluca Viali. And I, I don't mind so much if I'm missing Coventry Sheffield Wednesday, you know. So <laughs> it, it, they had, they were a long way behind. They were a long way behind everything in terms of um, the quality of players, the professionalism of clubs, the preparation of players, the, um, you know, the, uh, the, the sort of, you know, tactical approach of the teams. You know, English football was still in the metaphorical dark ages, really, at that time, everything was 4-4-2. It was quite direct, general style of play. It hadn't had the influence of um, of the uh, overseas, the impact of overseas players and coaches. I think on the, 
I don't know whether you looked into this at all, but there were, I have, there were, I'm pretty certain there were fewer than 10 players on the opening weekend of the, the, the first Premier League season from overseas. I think it's yeah, something like it seven. Ele- it was 11. It was 11. 11. In the 92, 93, it was 11. And then, uh, and the average now is, uh, is 35% of. I won't, I won't, players. I won't waste loads of podcast time. I mean, let's see if I can guess some of them because, uh, this will be, <laughs> this, 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 this will be fun. I can cut this out anyway. <laughs> yeah. Peter, Peter Schmeichel. Oh, no, I don't know him. I don't oh. fucking don't know. Go oh. on. All right. <laughs> oh dear, dear, dear! I thought we were in for a fun quiz there. All I'm right, pretty cool. sure I'd have got I'd have got quite a lot of them, but anyway, never mind. We can come back to that. We can come back to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but but so so, it, but it is very interesting based on that that English football has gone on to be this sort of unstoppable sort of behemoth, this um, cultural and economic giant that dominates everything. It's still, I think it's still wrong even to this day to say it's completely dominant because never underestimate that to a South American player, for example, if you're a Brazilian or Argentinian, which is where still an awful lot of global talent emerges from, Mm. if you look at their, their sort of pecking order of who they would like to join when they move over to Europe, Barcelona and Real Madrid will always be one and two there. No matter how big we think individual clubs are, over here, it was, it's all about Barcelona and Real Madrid for them. But then the difference is that in the old days, the third team would have been AC Milan or Juve. Um, now, probably after Barcelona and Real Madrid, there'll be about six Premier League clubs and then maybe Atletico Madrid, Juve. PSG have mixed things up a little bit, but they have the disadvantage of playing in France. So there's not that many players who you know, are that desperate to play for PSG that they will turn down, you know, Barcelona um, just to take the PSG dollar when they could play in La Liga instead of um, instead of Liga. But that has been the big, you know, and also when you look at the modern day rich lists of clubs, the sort of top 20 revenue generating clubs, highest grossing clubs in Europe, there's always at least 10 or 12 Premier League uh, clubs in there as well, even clubs that you look at and you think you're not even that successful and they've still just got mm. very, very deep pockets comparatively. And it is all down to the Premier League. That was not the case mm. in 1991. You look at the last season of the first division, there were still 22 teams. They were playing on muddy, bobbly pitches. There was a lot of direct football. Leeds won the league uh, with a team that had not long been promoted from uh, the uh, second division. And they were playing pretty direct, basic stuff. I mean, great side, an amazing midfield. Batty, Speed, Strachan and McAllister. That's a great midfield in any era. So I'm not trying to undermine the achievement of Leeds. But uh, what I am saying is that, it, you know, when you look back on, on, on sort of, you know, the football and stuff that was played then, it was a very kind of rigid British style of play. That every And... and I, despite my admiration for that Leeds United team, I do have to say that I, I strongly suspect if you put that team out now using those tactics and that approach for every game, I, I very much doubt they'd beat Man City. Mm. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, are you saying it, it, it almost, you feel like you're implying that it almost had to break away and become yeah. its own entity to get the rocket boosters to, to kind of overtake what was, you know, a far more dominant, uh, European yeah, because league. Just, but, yes. Because despite yeah. one of the big, one of the big game changers that should not be underestimated is the impact of, uh, the 1990 World Cup in Italy. Because after a period of, uh, you know, over more than a decade of just negativity towards uh, football and, you know, the government having no time for football and the, the England national team in particular being just, you know, associated with hooliganism and right-wing politics and shaming themselves whenever they went to international tournaments in terms of the behaviour of the fans and also just poor performances on the pitch, you know. Um, get, they got humiliated at the 1988 European Championship. So they went into the um, the 1990 World Cup and I don't think anyone had particularly high expectations, but there was something that just struck a chord with that World Cup. England went on with some very, you know, sort of likeable, relatable characters like Gascoigne and Lineker in the team to get all the way to the semi-final, a sort of, you know, typically heroic uh, England team defeat where they go and, you know, probably had the Certainly, I'd say the better of the game in that semi-final, but then you know, go and lose on penalties, of course. But that re-enlightened people's love of football, the, the sort of casual observer who weren't going to games anymore. And there was then just a bit of a boom around football. And Gascoigne had a massive role to play in that as well. You know, Gascoigne was just a mega star on something. And Tottenham that next season were great to watch. They went and won the FA Cup and had a good league season. And... Um, I think attendances were up and everything was kind of starting to boom a bit again. And there was this new TV deal with ITV, which whilst not as generous as the, the Sky deal would go on to be, it was still better than I think anything that they'd managed to negotiate before. I was just going to say one of the people we've not mentioned so far who played a very prominent role in the, in the Premier League is uh, Alan Sugar, of course. And, you know, he, he would kind of admit now with a sort of smile and a wink that, I mean, he... I don't know what I don't want to uh, cause a libel here, but I don't know what the dictionary definition of insider trading is. But he essentially made sure that they steered towards accepting the offer of Sky, knowing full well that he, he said secured the contract to provide the technology that was going to be used in every satellite dish. So <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah. that's so dodgy. So dodgy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently he was on the call. He was on the call. I can't remember who it was to. Um, but he was basically saying, you need to fucking up your, up your fucking bid right now. And then yeah. sort of, someone like Greg Dyke or someone turned to him and goes, who, who are you talking to, Ali? He goes, oh, just, just the missus. <laughs> <laughs> he told you, you mean, what? Like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think we all know that wasn't the missus, don't we? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but we have spoken about this before that there is, you know, a relative equi- you know, equity between the teams within the Premier League compared to some of the other European leagues. But but the idea that the Premier League is is pulling away as a whole from yeah. Um, yeah. the other the other leagues, um, you know, and and the the argument that the the, the parachute payments that that the Premier League pays to so teams that regulate uh, yeah. are, are exacerbating that issue. Um, yeah, that, this, I think this is actually really interesting. There's two, two things. The one piece of research I actually did do before this, and I, I was quite surprised. 
I looked at the, because we're coming up to the 30-year anniversary of the birth of the Premier League. And I thought, okay, seven, since the Premier League has been born, seven different clubs have won the league. And I thought, if you go and look 30 years before the birth of the Premier League, I expected the number of league winners to be significantly more than that. Uh, but actually it was nine. So that's comparable. Seven to nine, it's not a massive difference. Obviously, the Premier League till last season was only six and then Liverpool won it um, for the first time in that era. However, if you've extended that just by three more years, so rather than starting at like 1964, start at 1960, the first three years of the 60s were won by Burnley, Tottenham and Ipswich. So there's three teams there. So there's actually then, you know, um, 12 12 different winners in just over 30 years. And I don't think in the next sort of two or three years you're going to get uh, three separate winners of the Premier League. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not fully decided on whether it has stifled competitiveness or not. I think it's certainly, it is increasingly creating an elite that are pretty much impenetrable. We are lucky in some, to some extent compared to other leagues in that we, there are seven or eight clubs that are genuinely able to hold their own economically and able to compete, which means that there's no kind of easy games and there is genuine opportunity for different clubs to win the league. Then, of course, as we spoke about the other week, there's the, the anomaly of Leicester winning it a few years ago and that gives people hope. You think, all right, that's beautiful and maybe there is still this kind of romanticism football that you can create something amazing and go and win it out of nowhere. But I still I struggled you know, to imagine... Like Nottingham Forest, uh, who when they, they you know they got like promoted uh, and came up and won the league in the late seventies, mm, I just don't, I just can't. That that just doesn't that doesn't happen now, okay. unless unless similarly with the Leicester discussion we had there week, so many different um, variables need to fall into place perfectly, and um, for you know for something that remarkable to to occur but the 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 parachute payments is quite interesting because that's been controversial for a number of years for anyone who's if anyone ever listens to this and they don't really understand parachute payments are designed to cushion the impact of being relegated so if you're a club that is budgeted the running of, of your club uh based on premier league levels of income and then suddenly you find yourself in the the the, the championship where do you even if you're on telly uh, more often than any other club, because I'm pretty sure in the championship, rather than um, a, a big amount of money that's shared equitably between the 20 clubs, I'm pretty sure in the championship, you get an amount of money based on how many times your individual club is shown. So even if you're mm. on more than anyone else, you'll still probably only get, I don't know, 10%, around 10% of what the bottom Premier League club would get, if, if that. So it's a massive hole in your account you're suddenly going to have. So in order to mitigate that and stop clubs going bankrupt, which they very nearly did in the early 2000s with the collapse of ITV Digital, because ITV Digital was a newly launched digital proposition, sort of its own, like, do you remember NTL and all that sort of crap that was around then, sort of turn of the century? And they all went pop, and it was like a mass... But they'd paid a lot of money to take check to, to broadcast championship football, take it away from Sky, and then they went bust, and that threatened loads of clubs, and there were loads of clubs going into administration. They wanted to stop that ever happening again, so they put all these measures in place, and... Um, you know, salary caps and, you know, your massive points deductions if you do go into administration to encourage responsible running. And um, so, the, so the, the parachute payments are designed to stop that kind of shock of suddenly being thrown into a freezing cold tank of water and not being able to breathe. 
However, what that that obviously gives them a huge advantage because not even if they're relegated and they have to lose a load of players that got them in the Premier League and, and made them a pre- well a, a poor quality Premier League club, but still good enough to have got in the Championship or whatever. Um, that means they're going into the Championship with a, a sum of money that nobody else is getting, and you would kind of think that over over the last twenty years that would mean that those clubs are just forever going down and coming up. But actually. That's not the case. It's quite rare for a club to get relegated and get promoted straight away. They often go down and struggle really badly. And occasionally, in the case of like Sunderland, for example, they go down and then go down again. So mm. it's not a guarantee. What, having said that, this specific season <clears throat> that we're now, what, two, two thirds, three quarters of the way through is – I don't know. We, time will tell whether it's an anomaly or whether it's the beginning of a trend. But the top few clubs in the championship, so you've got the top two are Norwich and Watford and Bournemouth are in the playoff places and they're the three relegated teams. So there is a chance that for the first time, I think, certainly in the Premier League era, all three clubs that got relegated will go straight back up again. And you look at the teams that are likely to get uh, relegated this season, uh you could have two of the three teams that went up. So that would start to suggest that you're getting a gap between the Championship and the Premier League that is too great to handle, but that the teams that aren't quite good enough for the Premier League are too strong for the Championship. Mm. Now, I hope that this season is just a bit of an anomaly and that that's not the case. But, you know, if you're looking for kind of signs, it's not it's not what most football fans really want to see also for variation you know i'm i'm a i'm one of, i'm one of these sort of quite sad angrily retentive um, obsessives who i like to see big proper what i call proper clubs in the premier league and i know that probably sounds like i'm against the because you know i'm not against the dream of a you know a bournemouth um getting you know it's great but but then you know, with the, with the best in the world, they come into the Premier League with their ten thousand capacity stadium, and you know they've not they've not done so through like a kind of uh, a ground like a, a a movement of producing players and uh, and and enthusiasm, local enthusiasm, and coming up on like a kind of a wave of of, of joy. They, they've done it basically with Russian money. So even like someone like Bournemouth get taken over like by a Russian guy, and you kind of think as a result of that. And again, I'm, I realise I'm probably looking at this from a completely self-serving perspective, but I, I look at it from the point of view of somebody who, when you go to a game, if you're if you support an established Premier League team, you want as many what you'd call like you know juicy fixtures as possible, fixtures with a bit of history behind them. So like Leeds come back up. Leeds are genuinely one of the biggest clubs in the country. They're a massive, massive football club. One club city. They've got pedigree. They've got history. You know, so whoever plays against Leeds, you think right. You've got a, a, a rivalry going back decades against that lot. That's an interesting fixture. Even if Leeds are not at their strongest at that particular time, it doesn't matter. Game against Leeds is interesting. Similarly with clubs like Aston Villa and then going in the Championship, Nottingham Forest, Sheffield Wednesday, Derby County, you know, proper big clubs. And I, I, I have to say, I do like, I do like it when there there are those, you know, big big historic clubs in the in the Premier League. And I also like to see a a nice geographic spread. I like to be able to look at the, the sort of, you know, map of where these games are played and see, right, okay, you've got a couple of clubs from Yorkshire, a couple of clubs from Lancashire, West Midlands, East Midlands, 
obviously London, Northwest, Northeast, you know, ideally Newcastle and Sunderland rather than just one of them or even Middlesbrough. I, you know, next season, if Fulham stay up and Watford um, get promoted, which is a, you know, pretty, if you count Watford as a kind of an extension of London, um, what would that be? About seven or eight Premier League clubs out of 20 are going to be from London or the London area? I mean, that's, that's too much, isn't it? ridiculous so um, yeah you'll let me know what we're going to talk about next week are you I mean it will be something just as riveting um, as this it's going to be another another hot topic uh, Matt Um, (laughs) but yeah I will let you know and uh, rest assured uh, give me some give me a few days notice yeah we'll announce it we'll announce it next week uh, at the beginning of the podcast in the in the uh, (laughs) in the dramatic way that we always do in a way that, like, like an A-level student outlining his conclusions in the opening paragraph, you know, it's <laughs> to have that consistent narrative. That's no it, one yeah, can, yeah. can accuse us of not having a consistent narrative. Okay, well, on that bombshell, it's time to say goodbye. Have a nice week, or however long <laughs> you go before between listening to these uh, rambling wastes of time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Bye then. <laughs> Bye.